This is an ABC podcast. Day 2000 of the election campaign, is it? Are we excited yet? Hello, Hilary Harper with you today. I'm interested in your feelings about this campaign, what passions it arouses, if any, whether you've been following it closely or you switched off ages ago, what's behind that? Some figures suggest that Australians are increasingly disengaged from politics, but that contention is worth examining and I'd like your help to do that. So we'll take your calls on Life Matters in just a moment. Are we disenchanted with politics in Australia? Are we wanting different things than our leaders are delivering? Or is it more about a particular moment in history? We're going to find out how we feel about our democratic process lately and how we got here. But I'll need your input for that. How are you feeling about this coming election? Is anyone or anything inspiring your passions either way? What makes you tune in or out to what the politicians are saying? And what do you think is behind that? A lot of questions to start the day with, but hopefully you can help us answer them today. And our guest too, Ian McAllister, is Distinguished Professor of Political Science at ANU and Director of the Australian Election Study. Ian, welcome to Life Matters. Good morning, Hilary. Christine Jackman is a journalist, communications consultant and author of Inside Kevin 07. Christine, great to have you back on the program as well. Hi, Hilary. Hi. Ian, let's look first at how engaged we actually are with our political systems in concrete terms. The Australian Election Study has been surveying voters for decades about their feelings on the electoral process. Are we dissatisfied with the state of politics? Does the data back that up? Well, we are dissatisfied with politics. We have less trust in politicians. We're less satisfied with democracy. Uh, That's something that has been going on since 2007 and going back in the past in 1980s, 1990s and so on. Generally, when a new party got into government, there would be an increase in trust and then trust would gradually decline. So there's peaks in trust in 1996 and 2007. What we've seen since 2007 is a consistent decline in trust. So something has changed in the last 10 to 15 years. But it's probably worth saying that people in our surveys say they are engaged as they ever have been in elections. They care who wins, they care about the outcome, and they're interested in the whole political process. What seems to be the case is they're not particularly interested in what the political parties are offering them. And I think it's more of a a supply problem than a demand problem. Well, turnout's still relatively high, isn't it? And we've seen this massive uh, rise in enrolment for this last election. What does that say to you? Well, it says that what I've been saying, that in fact, people are engaged in the whole political process. They're just not especially interested in what's what's on offer from the parties. But we do see lower levels of enrolment among younger people. And that's a trend that's been happening for a long period of time. So to the extent that we've got compulsory voting, it tends to mask lower levels of turnout, which we see in other countries. Um, We don't see that here but we do see it in lower levels of enrolment among younger people. That is a problem. Christine Jackman, this election campaign is being described as a bit dry, among other things. But does it matter? I mean, considering we all need to vote anyway, does it matter if we have boring campaigns? <laughs> well, I mean, you wouldn't be talking about it if it didn't, if it didn't matter, <laughs> Hilary. Um, I think it matters. I think, and, and I think the fact that 
the, the reason this discussion matters is we should be constantly assessing um, what our forms of government are doing for us, what um, our polit politicians are doing or not doing for us. Um, you have to have an engaged populace, I think, to have a good government. Uh, I've often said that you know government's made by... Uh, the people who show up, and I don't just mean the, the political parties. I mean the people who who get out and letterbox for the for the various candidates, the people who turn up to to vote, the people who want to have their say in all manner of forums. So yeah, it definitely matters. One of the most fascinating things that I would throw into the mix uh, about what um, Ian said then um, is as soon as he said that uh, things have been falling away since two thousand and seven. I thought it's very it's it's worth flagging uh, one really big shift that happened uh, around that point, and that was the that was around I think that may have been the year that Steve Jobs held up the first smartphone. Why does it matter? Because what what that did it had a, a colossal impact on the way people gathered news um, in, and engaged with what was going on in their worlds because around the same time, a couple of year, years earlier, uh, Mark Zuckerberg had uh, launched Facebook, then known as the Facebook. Uh, and a very, there were very others, other social media platforms that were being built at the same time. But the big difference was that once people started to be able to engage with things on their phones and once the phones started to be able to assert algorithms in our lives, we started to see this sort of fragmentation of people's interests and how they tapped into what they considered the most important issues. And the national discourse began to fragment for good and for bad. Really interesting text and calls starting to come through on this. Pete in Taz texts in two, two main issues for him, political donations and lack of establishment of an ICAC tribunal, uh, an independent commission against corruption, besides, he says, politicising denying climate change. Uh, Ian, you talked before about this higher level of distrust, this growing trend for distrust. Would an ICAC help with that or is there something else behind it? Well, I think that is something that people are concerned about. And the surveys show that about three out of four people would like uh, an ICAC or some form of integrity commission. It's probably fair to say that the sort of thing we have in Australian elections is not sort of brown bags with money stuffed in it and things like that. It comes under the category of bad behaviour. Uh, the sports rorts affair, um, infrastructure spending uh, directed to marginal constituencies, things like that. So I'm not sure an ICAC would really deal with a lot of those problems. And we already have something which can deal with a lot of that, which is called an election. And if we're not happy with the, the people who are in government, then we can punish them by uh, uh, electing the opposition. But certainly it is a concern for people and also political donations is something that people mention a lot in surveys. I guess that punishment depends on whether you think that the people you're electing in their stead are different. Gail is on the line from Canberra. Gail, welcome to you. Hello, how are you? Good. What are your thoughts about politics and electioneering? Well, to be truthful, I'm absolutely fed up with the rubbishing of the other party. I feel quite strongly. I turn on the TV and it says someone says this and someone says this and blah, blah, and then it's an advert for the other side. I get something in my mailbox that tells me all about this person 
and how they're not what they say they are from someone, a party who, as far as I can tell, doesn't even have anyone standing for that particular seat, but they are a political party. If you can read the small print long enough to find out who they are. And are we not grown up enough? that we're not able to be told what the policies actually are, not what are disrespecting the other people. I just find that so appalling. And it is getting worse and worse and worse. And Gail, do you and, find, is it actually possible to find out the policies? I mean, I feel like there have been policy announcements. Is that enough for you? No, I'd like, I'd, well, I'd like to know more. I'd like to know just... When you're advertising, I mean, at the end of the day, a lot of the money ends up coming out of our pockets as taxpayers for one way or another. And I just think we're entitled to be treated with a little more respect and as if we're adults. Because you've got to be over 18 to vote, which suggests that you're regarded as an adult. Therefore, treat me as an adult. Don't disrespect other people in the hope that that might get you elected. Because to be truthful, the one, one of the things I got was so bad that I just went, oh, I'm voting for him. <laughs> that was the person they were rubbishing. Wow. And, well, you know, and Gail, if you look at our Facebook page, a lot of people agree with you. It's really great to get that perspective aired on our phone line. Thank you. Anne's on the line too from New South Wales. Anne, hello. Hello there. What's your thoughts about this election? Well, I think uh, people would engage more if they felt that their vote counted in a more realistic way. Um, it's a big question, but I would suggest that the AEC gets spittled away under the radar a bit. And I think we could probably do without electorates as such so that um, we didn't have to win majority of votes in a majority of electorates. So you just, you'd like to see Australia just be basically one big bucket and, and everyone votes? Well, for, for, yes, for certainly for federal elections, yes. And everyone casts their vote and um, we see who wins. But, but people often feel, I think, that if they're in a safe seat of one colour what's, and they're of a different colour, what's the point? And vice versa, because um, there's not that feeling that what they, what they want to happen is counted properly. And as far as the AEC is concerned, I do wonder about that, how they um, assume that they're totally separate from everybody and <laughs> totally um, honourable when, when almost nobody else is in the world. Um, and I wonder also whether that contributes to hung parliaments with the use of computerised demographics and so on, whether we end up with such... Um, such distributions that create hung parliaments. I'm not sure about that, but it's Let's check that out in my mind a little. I think that's yeah. a really good question. Let's check that with Ian McAllister, Distinguished Professor of Political Science at ANU and Director of the Australian Election Study. We have with us today also Christine Jackman, who's a journalist, communications consultant and author of Inside Kevin 07. And we'll, we'll check in a moment with what's changed uh, in our feelings and the, and the politicking since then and now, because I think that's a really inter- interesting point. But Ian McAllister, you heard Anne's concerns about the uh, voting systems that we use, and a lot of people do find it complicated and uh, confusing. What are your thoughts on Anne's idea of uh, changing it so that it's just basically one person, one vote, the whole of Australia? I think she's absolutely correct that our electoral institutions need considerable reform. We've got some of the most complex electoral systems in the world, They differ between the states and territories. They differ between upper and lower houses. And we have a system of compulsory voting that drives people to the vote uh, in a state or territory or Commonwealth election about once every 18 months. 
There's no other country in the world that has that level of electoral engagement. So voters have a very considerable information burden. So I have a lot of sympathy uh, for simplifying electoral institutions. The broader point, I think, is that we've got political institutions uh, generally, and also electoral institutions that were designed broadly in the 19th century. And if you take into account all of the things that have happened since Industrial Revolution to World Wars, we're on the cusp of an artificial intelligence revolution. We really need to be looking at these institutions, redesigning them for the 21st century. And I don't really think that debate has started yet. A lot of disillusionment coming through on our text line and I have to say on the ABC Radio National Facebook page under the Life Matters post on this issue. Anne says via text, I'm very engaged with this election as I really want action on climate change and an integrity commission. I'm worried for my grandchildren that this government has not addressed these issues. And another Anne uh, says, uh, contrary to your guest statement, RN has reported there was huge enrolment by young people just prior to enrolment closing last week. I think Ian, you were saying that uh, it is still lower than older Australia. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Yeah. And also, I was looking at it over a period of time, over the last 10, 15 years. Certainly this election, there has been a considerable increase in youth enrolment. Yep. And and goes on. Uh, also, rather than just being disengaged with politics, most of the young people she knows are disillusioned with the blatant lies and corruption that the current government has engaged in, she says. In the past, there was a standard and those responsible would resign. And that's from Anne via our text line. Christine Jackman, tell us a little bit about... 07 because it showed a bump in optimism and trust in government. What happened then and, and what went wrong after that? Yeah, 2007 remains, I think, in, in recent history, one of the most um, interesting historic and historic uh, campaigns. It certainly saw a massive shift um, in voter uh, in, in seats. So it was worth studying at the time and I think it remains worth looking at. Uh, there were a few things that um, made that uh, election campaign interesting. Firstly, it was the very end of a long and in, in, in many ways very successful uh, government. Um, John Howard had served a historically long period of, I think it was four terms. Uh, Kevin Rudd represented a, um, a generational shift for a start. It was, a, it was the shift to the baby boomer leader. Um, in Australia, and it also it, it was also a period of uh, a great deal of hope around uh, climate change. Again, believe it or not, that that long ago we were still talking about it and thinking that we could fix it quickly. Um, that was one of the key planks of uh, the the Kevin Seven campaign was that we would sign up, uh, we would. Um, we would take it seriously, whereas the, the coalition government had been seen to be stonewalling. Feels like nothing much has changed. Um, the Howard government changed uh, its tune at the very last minute and said, yes, yes, we'll sign up to things. We'll introduce a, a, car, a, a carbon trading scheme. But I think the die was cast on that issue. And the other issue that um, really drove that campaign was that having won a majority in the Senate in its last term, the Howard government had become quite, um, I guess, aggressive about its industrial relations reform, and that was that had promised to see that there'd be a lot of workers' rights sort of stripped away or not protected, except on an enterprise level. And what that meant is a lot of the people who were most exposed, young people, uh, casualised workers, um, 
would be were were very very frightened. People who had kids were were concerned, and the ACTU mounted one of the most impactful ground uh, grassroots campaigns that's probably been seen in recent times, led by Greg Combe. So that really was probably the the last great example of sort of grassroots politicking around a particular issue. And just before we move on to the implications for our current political landscape, Christine, I want to quickly bring in Simon here. He's called in on that topic. Simon, hello. Uh, Hi there. Now, you you were interested in Kevin 07. What happened since then? Yeah, so Kevin 07 was when I first voted and I just felt like that campaign was really exciting um, and got me really interested into politics. But now I just feel like neither major party has any really substantial policy that they're bringing forward and both kind of lack of a vision for Australia as compared to like what was being discussed in 07. So what was it about 07? Was it one of the things that Christine mentioned? Was it industrial relations or climate or one of those policies? Yeah, definitely. Like I was just a, a uni student, so casualisation of work choices was a really big topic for me as well. But also climate change. Like I think um, it was good to have some sort of vision and action on climate change, um, whereas like you don't really have that anymore. And Simon, you're clearly still interested in these issues. Uh, so there's a level of engagement there. Has that been diverted into other avenues apart from traditional politics or the major parties? Yeah, probably more just like working inside of the community myself and trying to just like volunteer and do my own bit. But I don't really look to political parties to resolve big problems anymore. That's really interesting. Simon, thank you for sharing that with us. Cheers. No worries. Thank you. Christine, can I just jump in there and make the point? Because it's a really important one to hear from Simon. I think that what happened immediately after 07, I think, left a real scar that shows up in terms of lack of trust and disillusionment. And what I mean by that is having raised these great expectations of a fresh new start, um, a great hope, uh, the... First, yeah, the first term of the Rudd government saw Rudd, you know, uh, uh, thrown out as leader in a sort of an overnight coup. Um, it, it became, a sort of very quickly became a government uh, defined by factional warfare and the so-called faceless men uh, sort of divvying up the, the proceeds of, of power, if you know what I mean, and fighting amongst themselves. And I really think, given that before that we'd had periods of very, very great stability in governments and leadership, it really damaged, um, you know, a generation probably of Australians, but certainly a great number of Australians who'd invested a great deal of hope in this particular change um, to a new style of government to see within about 18 months that the, the, that the Prime Minister that had sort of led that campaign sort of deposed and then this back and forthing between Julia Gillard and Kevin Rudd and the various the various allies. What that did is it, it really did foster a great feeling of betrayal and we, well, we just can't trust anyone now, can we? Because of the, the amount of investment of hope and, and genuine sort of excitement about a new future that then dissolved so quickly into... What you, what you now see is called politics as usual. When we heard that youthful excitement from Simon, or, or its echo anyway, but Frank gives us the other end of the age spectrum. Frank from Shoal Bay, welcome to you, Frank. Great to have you back on the program. Good to be back, and uh, thanks for taking the call. Yes, I, I, 
very much the other end of the uh, as 93. I'm now in my 94th year. But I, I've been around long enough to remember the days when uh, political parties actually did have policies to the future but were allowed to express them. Nowadays, uh, they're not because you've got a situation where 90% of the newspapers are controlled by two two people, Murdoch and Peter Costello. So as a, as a result, without their support and without their making their sheets available to both sides of politics, nobody knows. Uh, everything is distorted and controlled. And, and, Contradicted. So, Frank, I just need to pick on that. I don't think Peter Costello's got much to do with the newspapers in Australia. I know Murdoch is a, a very familiar figure, but I, I hear you that you're, you're worried about the concentration of media ownership, yeah? Costello is chairman of the board of Channel 9 and, uh, and Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Oh, good point. You know, that's the reality of it. And, uh, and uh, as a subscriber to Sydney Morning Herald for 70-odd years, I've noticed the change, the continual change. And the only consistent voice for moderation is Ross Gittins, and he had an article during the week uh, that explained the desperation of young people today, that that they have no hope of getting a home, uh, no very little hope of getting permanent employment and careers and likewise, and they're very disillusioned with the thing. Yes, and Frank, and if they make it to university, they've got a massive hex debt too. There's lots of breaks on people's um, progress through life. I want to pick up on one of the points that Frank made with you, Christine Jackman. You could also argue, couldn't you, that there is a proliferation of other media platforms that people can use and, and access information on. Is that helping our political process? <laughs> well, it's made democracy messier, um, Hillary, and I think that um, it's a really good, it's a really important point that Frank makes. Um, but it's uh, and it's one that I lived through. Um, that uh, because I was, you know, a, a journalist for the newspaper uh, at the time of Kevin '07, I'm now not, and I've lived through the the experience of the fragmentation of readerships, which has led to, oddly enough. Uh, you know, a great deal, number of readers moving away from the traditional newspapers, and therefore, um, the only the, the only the biggest are surviving. So he's right in some ways. News Corp has increased its dominance or of traditional media markets, albeit with probably a smaller readership overall, because people are increasingly getting their news elsewhere. And what that means is, it's had a it's had a number of different effects, um, but the 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 greatest one is it's fragmented the market, and what what that means is we're all we will find our niches online that we're, where we will find our issues that matter to us. Uh, but we we're not talking to each other, and we're not there is no longer a consensus. Um, now that can be a good thing as well as a bad thing. And just let me yeah, let me reflect on the fact that there was a long period of time when I started in news, newspapers in the nineties. Most of the newspapers were run by, you know, a standard type, a white man from a particular type of background. Um, and surprise, surprise, business and politics was predominated by white men of a particular type of background. Now, what that did for both good and bad was that it, it, it allowed a general consensus of what the issues of the day were. Um, and that made things much simpler. You know, we were all talking about... You know, I don't know. Let's say industrial relations policy, but on the other hand, if if all of the all of the people running things thought that as they did back then that 
domestic violence was a, it was a was an issue that should stay behind closed doors. I mean, when I started in newspapers, we were told that things like domestic violence, uh, child protection, um, issues like that, sexual assault, they weren't things that people wanted to read over their cornflakes in mm-hmm. the morning. Um, now, what that means is a whole heap of issues were able to be kept off the public agenda because a group of people just didn't see that they were particularly important to them. Rightly or wrongly, it probably wasn't conscious in a lot of ways. What's happened with the internet and particularly with the so- with social media is it's allowed a proliferation of voices. And in some ways, that's a great thing. We wouldn't have had things like Me Too. We probably wouldn't have, you know, people who've allowed, the, have been able to say, actually, this issue does matter and this is why it matters. And they've been able to find other people who, who feel the same way. And they've suddenly been able to exert, exert an influence. And in many ways, that's been brilliant. I, I would say things like same-sex marriage wouldn't have happened without that ability to coalesce around an issue. I don't think we would have seen... I mean, women have been arguing about issues that what they wanted to be taken seriously for absolutely years, since the 60s at least, with the, you know, with the second wave of, of, of feminism. It was only with things like Me Too starting to happen the people started set, uh, sitting up and taking notice because they could coalesce and say, actually, we're not going away. But the flip side, Hillary, is that um, so social media has, because of the way the algorithms work and because of the way um, it drives engagement, is you get more engagement if you uh, tap into people's anger and you tap, tap into people's fear and you keep it simple. And what we're seeing, as Frank's picked up, is we're seeing that in news, in mainstream news now. It's becoming more shrill. Um, it's becoming more polarised because they're targeting certain audiences. And we're seeing it drive the political process as well. Mm. You know, politicians can't afford to float. I remember the days, as Frank would have, if you had a policy um, that you were investigating, you floated what was called a green paper to explore the options and then a white paper to sort of say, this is what we're thinking we're going to do with this particular policy. And you had weeks, if not months, to explore it. Now, 24 hours, if it's shattered down on, on Twitter, you know, we're moving on. Yeah. Uh, it's really interesting, so, yeah. um, strong voices coming through on our text line as well as on our Facebook page here today and our phones. We're speaking with Christine Jackman, journalist, communications consultant, author of a book called Inside Kevin 07, which is a real window into what has changed between now and then in our levels of optimism and trust and engagement. And Ian McAllister, distinguished professor of political science at ANU and director of the Australian Election Study, which gives us some very meaty data on how much we're interested in and involved in political processes in Australia. Uh, One representative text, tell me why I should vote for an institution that lies, breaks promises and on it goes. Yes, I will cop a fine, but I didn't contribute to this BS. Start apologising for stuff ups and being honest and I will consider casting a vote. Uh, Lots of other people with particular issues on their mind as well. May has called in from Venus Bay. May, hello. Hello there. How engaged are you? I'm very engaged this election because we have a lot at stake. And for me, two of the really key things, like they are for many people, is climate action and climate change because it affects everybody and everything. But also the loss of our biodiversity in Australia is absolutely alarming and it's got very little attention um, during this election campaign. I guess it is kind of tied in with climate change, but it's also something very important by itself as well. 
And so, May, obviously, you know, these are issues that are really firing up your passions. Do you feel that there's anywhere to put that passion at the moment? Yes, I do, actually. I've been um, getting very engaged in this election, as I mentioned. I do agree with you that it's a very bland campaign when we're looking at from the two major parties. And I think this is not really okay when we're facing such big losses and problems. And one of the reasons for that blandness is what we call state capture, where you know both of our major parties are receiving large donations from fossil fuel companies, and that really um, limits the amount of um, change that we can expect from those two parties. It's however, re- yeah. So yes, go ahead. No, go on, May. Um, however, um, Adam Brandt delivered a really clear and inspiring address um, for the Greens. I've found that their policies are really clear and on target for the things that I would like to see change. So, May, that was that interesting moment, wasn't it, where a journalist yeah. asked him a particular question about a particular element of his policy and he said, Google it, mate. Is that, yeah. a, is that good enough, though, May, if, if you're, uh, you know, jockeying to be in a position of power, don't you need to have that information at your fingertips? Does that worry you? It doesn't worry me at all. I think he was completely um, fine to say that. I think it was a really good response because he then went on to answer the question and demonstrate that he did know what he was talking about. What Adam called out there was this nitpicking by the journalists and the inability of our current media, some excused, not all media, but our media, media really needs to step up to look at the situation that we're in instead of constantly nitpicking, trying to bring individuals down. It's you know? great to have your, your views here as part of the program to do today too, May. Thank you so much for calling in. You're welcome. Linda is in Albury. Lots of people wanting to chat to us today. Linda, welcome to you. Oh, hello. How are you? Good. And what's on your mind? Oh, I just felt, I suppose this is the first year we've ever um, taken much interest in the campaign, but only because we felt so left out. Um, we're, we're a young family, both working full-time, have kids in school, young kids, and um, moving from Sydney to the country, we feel like we've, we, we're not being included. Things like Medicare bulk billing in Albury at the moment is terrible. You, you can't find a bulk billing practice with an appointment available, so it's a cost out of pocket, um, childcare spots for vacation care. We recently got a letter from our member, Susan Lay, at home, and I read it, and I was totally dismayed that nothing in her letter included anything to help young families, and I feel like working living in the country, we're just forgotten. And it's really expensive. Yep, when you can factor in fuel and, and all those other pressures, it's huge, isn't it, Linda? Thanks so much for calling in. Thank you. Sam's in Melbourne on a, a topic that's on a lot of people's minds this election. Sam, hi. Hi, how are you, Hilary? Good. What's firing you up at the moment? Well, um, I'm a volunteer in one of the independent campaigns in Kuyong at Monique Ryan. You might, you might have heard of her. Yes, indeed. And uh, I'm one of her 1,500 probably plus volunteers, and I've been door knocking for her. And um, it's very, very interesting to hear people's comments and, and in different areas of, of the electorate, what, what people think and whether they're supportive or not. But but that's, that's one thing. But the, the idea that I wanted to mention, uh, and this is for your listeners, is that, um, in my view, politicians 
respond to two things, votes and money, money meaning the donors. And um, uh, the donors have got the game sewn up. The vote, the votes they're chasing are the ones in the marginal seats, and they're trying to find some little uh, uh, policy that will attract those disinterested voters in marginal seats. Though, Sam, there's and, been some uh, discussion about how transparent the donations to the Teal Independents are too, isn't there? You know, Simon Holmes at court has funneled a lot of money into those candidates. Do you think those concerns are valid too? Uh, well, he's funneled some money in. Most of Monique's money comes from, from volunteers like me making our own donations. I think that's the majority of our funding comes from donations directly to Monique from just ordinary people. So it's not it's not an issue for me, but I think if, if people are thinking about voting for an independent and these, these tail independent, they should think that they... They are independent from the lobbyists. They're independent from the media. They're independent from these marginal electorates who seem to determine the election campaign. And they just listen to what the people want in their electorate. It's quite, the, the people I talk to are, are pretty gobsmacked when somebody knocks on the door and says, well, we want to know what your issues are. Really interesting that you mentioned the lobbyists, Sam. Thank you for your call. A text message has come in. I would like to also mention my objection to the lobbyists. Everyone should visit a sitting at Parliament House and see them wandering around with their orange lanyards like they own the place, says Liz from Tassie, and they do, she says, and being wined and dined by the politicians in the cafe restaurant. Make sure you visit it to see this too. This is from Tassie. Loving hearing your calls today with our guest, Christine Jackman, journalist, communications consultant and author of Inside Kevin 07. And Ian McAllister, Distinguished Professor of Political Science at ANU, Director of the Australian Election Study. Ian, I asked Christine before whether it really mattered if we're disengaged and, and I found her answer very interesting in terms of uh, how, how, we, how we're part of the political process. Could you talk a little bit about the concrete effects that you have that you see on who enters politics if the electorate as a whole is disengaged with the whole idea? Well, it does affect uh, who gets engaged in politics. And we've seen over the last 15, 20 years or so, a much greater prevalence of career politicians and people who see politics as something they'll do for uh, the bulk of their working lives and so on. And we saw that very dramatically with the four changes of prime minister that we had starting in 2010. Those various changes were not really about policies. They were to do with the electability of the political parties and the government and the, the elect, a, a number of representatives wanting to see their positions be retained. But we also see a lot of voting volatility in the electorate as well. And I think that's a factor that's a, a real consequence of declining trust. Uh, if we go back to the 1960s, about three out of every four voters never changed their vote during the course of their whole voting lifetime, which is absolutely amazing stability if you think about it. Uh, when we ran our 2019 survey, the same figure was 39%, which is still substantial, but we've got much greater volatility, people moving around. Uh, they do it largely because they're less rusted on to the major political parties. Uh, there's much more critical voting. So people have got uh, a greater degree of education. They're much more likely to look at policies in detail. Indeed, if they do see policy differences between the major political parties, and they're much more likely to be critical of the political leaders. And again, a thing we've observed in our surveys going back 30 years or so is that leaders have become much less popular 
over time. Now, there's some exceptions to that. John Hard was very popular in the 1990s. Christina's old already mentioned Kevin Rudd in 2007. But we, if we look at the trend, leaders are much less popular these days than they have been in the past. Now, whether that's because the leaders we've got are simply not as competent as the leaders we had, say, uh, 20, 30 years ago, or whether it's because voters becoming more critical, I'm not sure, perhaps a combination of two, of the two. I was really interested to see, Ian, that a 2020 Ipsos poll found that voters thought ethical behaviour was the single most important quality in a leader. Is that cause for hope? Do you think that people are still pretty keen to see good outcomes in, in their political leaders? It is. And we've asked a lot of questions in our surveys about the qualities people want in leaders. And what we find is by far the most important thing that will shift a vote is seeing a leader that they can trust, who has a a degree of integrity. Another factor which is important in all of that is that they want to see leaders that have strengths, that are charismatic, that they make decisive decisions and so on. Voters tend not to look for leaders that are extremely intelligent or uh, display compassion or empathy. And again, the, the sort of current crop of leaders we've had over the last couple of elections have really performed performed very badly in all of these. For example, in 2019, Bill Shorten uh, had recorded some of the lowest ratings on a lot of these qualities since we started asking these questions in 1987. Christine Jackman, I saw a really interesting opinion piece by Waleed Ali in the Nine newspapers recently saying, uh, basically suggesting that this campaign's almost an identity politics campaign. Vote for us because we're this party. Don't vote for them because they're that party and they might do that thing that that party does from time to time or would like to do. What do you think it takes, Christine, to, to have and to sell a vision, an overarching vision for Australia to the electorate? Well, it it takes um, time, and to take to in fact to take up on Ian's point, it takes um, to establish yourself as a as a competent uh, leader who can be trusted. The first thing that it takes is 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 time. The, and this is what you know with stability. That's what Howard had, even at the end of his. Um, four terms, um, he had he was he is remarkably um, high per, uh, personal approving, approval ratings. Why? Because even when people didn't like him, they knew what he stood for. And I think one of the things we've seen in the last um, year, ten to fifteen years is this um, this, this uh, profusion of of. Uh, as Ian again said, career people who are staying in this for careers, who are who are good at winning campaigns, and they're almost they're good at marketing. And I, that's not a a swipe at the current prime minister who's become aligned with you know the the idea of him being from marketing. I've seen this over and over again that you can increasingly a bunch of people come in who know how to market a campaign, who know how to read some polls and some focus groups and say, okay, this is what we do. This is what we do. These are the words we use. This is because this is what will turn people on. And, of course, it shifts. It shifts and it becomes this sort of strange environment where rather than leading, you're being led by whatever whim or whatever, you know, phrase you think will, will float people's boat for the next 24 hours. And people eventually pick up on that and they, they realise, well, we don't know what you stand for. You said you stood for this, but now you stand for this. So your word doesn't mean anything. And you and as a result, we're seeing 
this disillusionment where people feel like, well, nobody stands for anything. And occasionally, as Walid was saying, you then get this explosion of, oh, we stand for, you know, these sort of niche issues that'll grab um, the headlines. Now, in my case, and I don't know if this is the issue that Walid was addressing, but um, one of the things we've seen is this this um, issue explode about, you know, transgender uh, women competing in sport. Now, my suspicion having been around political consultancies and, and campaigns for a long time is, you know, that's being deliberately inflamed. I mean, that issue was nowhere on the political landscape two months ago. Yeah, and it's interesting um, seeing people say, look, I look forward to this explosion of interest to continue in women's sport because it has not been there in the past. Ben is in Mermaid Beach. Ben, hello. Yeah, g'day, good morning. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Now, you're youngish and engaged-ish. Tell us how that came about. Well, yeah, I'm 34, and for the past, I suppose, since I've been 18, until about until about six months ago this year, I wasn't enrolled to vote, and I really felt like there was no real benefit to me to, to vote because um, I, I really resonated with the caller before. She said that, you know, like living in a pretty safe uh, Liberal seat, there's not really much my vote was going to do because um, it's just always going to go there. I think it's been, it's probably one of the fourth most safest Liberal seats. So just the past three years has really... Um, engaged me, I suppose, on a really emotionally visceral level, just to see so many different sort of stuff ups that, um, the, you know, I, I know we only really hear one side of the stories and, and politics is very challenging, but um, it just, I just feel there's just been too many instances where the coalition has stuffed things up and not really taking responsibility for it. That's so, interesting, Ben, because it, it's like the negatives that are, are firing you up. That's that's a contrast to some of the other things we've been hearing today. Thanks for your call. I want to quickly go to Fiona in Hobart. Fiona, what would help things in your opinion? Well, I remember when Julia Gillard became um, Prime Minister. My daughter was eight years old. She actually became interested in politics and was following it incredibly closely. I had a conversation um, a few days ago in a public area with one person. And then I had other women coming up and telling me the same thing. Their daughters became interested and their, some of their sons were becoming interested in politics because of the change in gender. That's the only thing I can put it down to because she was a woman in power and being the face of Australia. And if you think of New Zealand with Jacinta there, Australian young people are far more interested in what she's doing than our Prime Minister. Um, so I think that the politicians and the um, various parties have missed a major opportunity by engaging our younger people to get these people who they want in their party in the future. They've missed it. Or maybe they need to um, do something about it now so that they will have parties in the future because <laughs> having white males is not going to do it. Fiona, thanks so much for finishing up the, uh, the discussion for us this morning. Thank you. Fiona's in Hobart. Christine Jackman and Ian McAllister, greatly appreciate you joining us today. It's been a really fascinating discussion on Life Matters. Thank you. Thank you very thanks much, Hilary. Christine Jackman. And thanks to all your listeners who have been brilliant. They've re-engaged me. Excellent. <laughs>
<laughs> I love hearing our calls from our listeners. Christine Jackman's a journalist, communications consultant and author of Inside Kevin 07. Ian McAllister is a distinguished professor of political science at ANU and director of the Australian Election Study. Michael McKenzie, what did you glean from this morning? Glean? I've got an entire thesis uh, <laughs> ready to rock and roll right here. Uh, Pete in Tasmania says, from the response you've received, most have been fairly negative, but people do actually care about the political process, he says, which is a very positive thing. Judith from the ACT uh, texted a number of times and one of her comments was, we do not want career politicians. Another person says, I think the combination of disengaged voters and compulsory voting is a dangerous combination, leading to people falling for three-word slogans. Leaders, according to this text, should be voted on based on their expertise first, then on their preferences, roughly like the management of a company. The CEO is more like the chair and has no absolute rule. Then we have people in power who know what they're talking about. Paul says, remove power from the parties. Let's have a hung parliament, please. <laughs> yeah. Great. Yeah. Well, you know, there's pros and cons there. Ron says from the ACT, how can any party govern with a real mandate for significant change if they concentrate on negativity instead of promoting positive policy? Will Labor be able to claim a mandate for change if they win, or will we have more of the same political banality currently in place? I Lots hope more. Not. Lots more to come, but we'll do that later. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Michael McKenzie here on Life Matters. You're listening to Radio National and a very familiar voice for you up next if you're a long-time listener to the program, reflecting on his favourite moment from the show for our 30th birthday celebrations. Hi, it's Yumi Steins here, host of the smash hit ABC podcast, Ladies, We Need to Talk. Speaking of smashing, Ladies, We Need to Talk is about smashing taboos. Yeah. The stuff that we're afraid of because it's shameful, because it's embarrassing, because we're told it's not normal, it's going to be hot. So join me on the new steamy season of Ladies We Need to Talk. Find us on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, I'm Richard Aidy. These days I present the money, but I did present Life Matters for six years from 2006 to the end of 2011 and I had a ball Life Matters that is where you are right now Hello, I'm Richard Aidy Good to be with you on Radio National So when I think about that time I think about um, being part of this team that was really well led and not, not by me I was the guy that you heard talking but I had the enormous good fortune of a very good team led by two outstanding people, both of whom are no longer at the ABC, Amanda Armstrong and Jackie May. I've got a couple of memories. I've got lots of memories. And there's so many, but I'm, I must tell you this story. It was in that first year, uh, we had Jane Fonda on the program. And from memory, we couldn't talk to her live because of her schedule. You know, she was here to push her autobiography. So we got her when we got her and she came in and she was remarkable. She was candid, she was funny and it was a great interview and almost nothing to do with me, believe me. It was just her. Let's talk about your dad first. What is there in you 
that comes from him. Oh, the better parts of me. <laughs> and this story is from what happened immediately afterwards. Now, I, I can't claim to have witnessed this. It was told to me. In the interview, as often happens, she had a glass of water. And we encourage people to drink water because it, it, it kind of keeps you going. And you sound better. And at the end, as so often happens, we just walked out and, and I forgot to pick up her empty glass and I forgot to pick up mine, I think. And almost immediately after that, somebody else was recording uh, Viggo Mortensen, the actor who'd been in The Lord of the Rings and, and, and lots of other things. And somebody, and I didn't witness this, I stress, said, oh, Jane Fonda was just in, in that studio. And he said, oh, was this, was this her glass? And they said, yeah. And he went, right. And he pocketed it. He put it in his pocket. Now, I'm sure he did this because he's got comic timing and he knew it would be funny. But it's a story that I've never forgotten. Celebrating 30 years of non-stop conversation. Life Matters on ABC Radio National. Richard Aidey, just one of the previous presenters of Life Matters over the last 30 years. It's been very interesting hearing from them over the past few weeks and also hearing some of the best interviews they've done over the decades. You can find them in their entirety on our website. Welcome to the Life Matters Inbox. On Anzac Day, we asked you about any significant pen friends that you might have had over your life. And Maureen writes, yes, our two daughters were pen friends of two German sisters when they were in high school. When they grew up, their parents became our pen friends. And now we have two adopted daughters, in inverted commas, and their partners, as well as four adopted grandchildren. And uh, Maureen says, we have made several visits to Germany to visit them. A wonderful connection. And Michael, Louisa got in touch too. Yes, uh, Louisa writes on Facebook, back in the 1980s when I subscribed to a quilting magazine that advertised pen pals, I wrote to a woman in France. We were both quilters and both had twins. We wrote snail letters, sent cards and gifts for years until emails came along. And then we finally met in 2016 when we went over there. We connected immediately, she says, and she wanted us to stay for a week, but we only had one night. We're still very close and they have since retired to Corsica. On another story, Chris writes, I was very surprised in the discussion on men's body hair that there was no mention of the lack of body hair on women. These days it seems women are under pressure to remove all body hair to look like Barbie dolls. When 40 years ago, says Chris, it was okay to have hairy armpits and crotch. Men's grooming is more relaxed, says Chris. Five days growth, messy hair, never raises a comment. Not sure about that. I think men are under increasing pressure about the way they look. But yes, I certainly have noticed the shift in pressure on women too. Don't you worry. <laughs> that was on all <laughs> our minds. But we thought today we're going to focus on the pressures on men. 
And Chris, we actually have, in times gone by, uh, talked about the pressures on women to remove body hair and what's underlying all of that. Uh, Janet texted to say, I'm surprised to hear that men waxed. It is a painful process. While Russell writes, if you saw me, you would understand that I feel no pressure whatsoever. I wonder if Russell was one of the people who sent us pictures of their shiny bald head on Facebook. That was lovely. Colin (laughs) responded too, saying, real men or hipsters? We don't all have to look a certain way for Insta or Twitter, while Julia observes, I love a nice young man who is fascinatingly well-groomed. Look out, fellas, says Julia. The old ladies might be perving on you. Hmm. Our archival coverage of the lack of recognition of creativity in our education system had you writing as well. Kate says, hi, I'm about to turn 50. I did finish high school through an excellent public system in Brisbane. I achieved broadly good results. But after that, being creative, curious and a deep thinker, this was a severe disadvantage. I've had 11 failed attempts at completion of university. I'm not dumb, nor antisocial or slack. I tried so hard, but I just couldn't latch onto the process of regurgitation of information. I have become a private intellectual, she writes, who survived on low-paid, unskilled jobs and dabbling in the arts. I think this is a great waste of my talent, and I am excited to hear the speaker challenge the system. This texter writes, it's true what your speaker said about the need for a mentor. As a high achieving kid fresh into uni in the wrong course, I remember my instinctual fervid search for a mentor and the person who turned up was the opposite of supportive. That had devastating reverberations down the decades. There were so many more of your comments, but let's finish on this topic with Jen from Bondi, who writes, my eight-year-old granddaughter has just been diagnosed with ADHD. She is a wonderful, creative, artistic person, full of life. She can perform like a professional, yet she can't read. She struggles and feels a failure at eight years old. I can only hope she can gain the best education to enhance her already vibrant personality. And there's always hope for kids like that. I hope that uh, you can find the support you need. Our Food for Thought segment on the batch preparation of food had you writing as well. Carolyn advises simmer a whole chicken, remove the flesh, chicken stock in the fridge. Both go into risotto, Japanese broth, curry, chicken stir fry, fried rice, chicken salad, salad, burritos, etc., etc. That's fantastic. And when we discussed in that segment not ever reusing seafood, Philip remarked, Michael, ever heard of the mild, medium, strong, super strong, catastrophic curried prawns, old sailor? Yeah, I wonder how many old sailors lived to be very old when the curried prawns became catastrophic. (laughs) I think we'll never know, Helen. Perhaps just as well. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Many of us have always found staying out of debt is a very good strategy, though it's impossible if you're buying a home. And interest rates are tipped to go up in the next few months. Then there's the rise of buy now, pay later schemes and the debt traps they can contain these days too. So on our next program, we'll look at ways to manage debt in an economic landscape that might be quite different from the one we grew up in and where the cost of living is a live issue for so many Australians. Join me for Life Matters here on Radio National. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.